HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liut, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. A few weeks ago, Representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York and Senator Edward Markey of Massachusetts introduced a congressional resolution, which I'm sure you've all heard about by now, called the Green New Deal. The proposal, which was met with both great fanfare and aggressive criticism, calls on the federal government to wean the U.S. from fossil fuels, curb planet warming greenhouse gas emissions across the economy, and guarantee new high-paying jobs in clean energy industries. Today, we're going to learn more about what the proposal entails exactly and what it means for our food system. Joining me to discuss is Christopher D. Cook, an award-winning journalist who writes for Harper's, The Atlantic, Mother Jones, The Economist, and many others. He's also the author of Diet for a Dead Planet, Big Business, and the Coming Food Crisis. More recently, he's written about the new Green New Deal in the nation and for Civil Eats, and I'm so pleased it's brought him to the show today. Christopher, Welcome. Hi, Jenna. Nice to be with you. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you. Um, okay, so before we get into the discussion um, about the Green New Deal, I want to talk about your background. You've been writing about food system issues for a very long time. You know, I think that your book was like one of the first, at least in my opinion, kind of big books to like bring a lot of these food system issues um, to the to our kind of public uh, consciousness. So can you um, tell me what drew you to write about the challenges in our food system um, in the first place? Yeah, thank you. Um, it all started for me, I mean, I've been interested in a lot of labor issues around uh, the food system for quite some time, especially uh, farm workers, uh, something I even did some reporting on in college and remained interested in. And um, But this sort of stemmed 
from some reporting I was doing in the 1990s, way back then, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> about um, welfare reform or deform, as many of us called it, in which um, there were a lot of schemes to privatize welfare benefits and basically push recipients into some of the most uh, brutal uh, work in America that nobody else wanted to do. And one of those main sectors was the chicken industry, chicken and meat packing. And so I became uh, sort of gruesomely acquainted with <laughs> more of the details of how our meat is made, our meat and chicken, um, and the kind of struggles that workers, welfare recipients and, and other workers, migrant, immigrant workers, go through uh, in producing our food supply. And uh, through reporting on that, uh, visited farm country more and just got more and more deeply fascinated uh, by the sort of confluence of all these crises, um, ex- forms of exploitation that were basically being driven by uh, large corporate agriculture and the corporate food industry. And so, you know, what we saw was, you know, especially in the 1990s and, and still today, was um, large corporations taking over more and more of the food system, just about every single part of it, from uh, meat production to proce- food processing to, uh, you know, controlling just about every major commodity group that you can think of uh, or food group you can think of. And in the, wh- while they were controlling that, they were also controlling the terms of uh, labor and land use and uh, impacts on the environment and uh, the fate of farmers. And so basically we saw thousands of farmers uh, going out of business, uh, foreclosing their farms due to poverty and debt and being priced out of the market and uh, just massive water and air pollution from the meat industry as well as from pesticide fuel um, agriculture and the mainstay of our food supply is still uh, what many people call industrial agriculture, which is mm-hmm. you know a large scale uh, monocrops or a single crop, one or two crop production of um, commodities like corn and wheat and soy and and other uh, other commodities that are used for processed foods, basically, or they're used primarily for. Uh, feed for livestock, therefore the meat industry, and increasingly as a biofuel. Right. So this uh, was these yeah. issues were what originally drew you to write this to right. this book. Um, and so, what was the goal that you were hoping to accomplish in writing the book? Yeah, like drawing uh, okay. awareness or <laughs> change everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but of course that doesn't happen. Um, yeah, I mean, I well, think, not you know, not all at once, but you know, it no, starts it doesn't. <laughs> but you, you hope that you're making a contribution that um, supports and you know an idea for change. I don't believe in just you know writing a collection of facts uh, and just leaving it at that. You know, but I think it all has to be fact driven and evidence based as well. Of course, mm-hmm. uh, as a journalist, um, you know, one of the original great works was Francis Merleau-Ponty's Diet for a Small Planet in yeah. the early '70s, and obviously, my title references that and. Uh, it's essentially saying, you know, this is how we're not living the way we need to live. And that we're not eating and growing food, producing food the way we need to, to survive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and this is regarding the climate, as we'll talk about, as we can talk about an environment beyond climate, as well as uh, just, our, you know, our farm sector, rural communities around this country, workers, you know, the whole 
you know, my book goes into this and other articles talk about this, you know, just the whole um, sort of, you know, total devastation that's created by the food industry. And you think of food as something that's supposed to be nourishing and, and nurturing and supposed to feed us and sustain us. And um, the creation of food uh, now in this industrial uh, system has become something that is profoundly unsustainable and profoundly harmful uh, for workers, farmers, consumers, and the environment as a whole. Has there anything, has anything changed, um, you know, drastically since you first published this book? I mean, certainly the movement, the quote movement Mm -hmm. itself has gained a lot of steam compared with like the mid 2000s, right? So are there a few key Mm -hmm. issues that you have noticed that continue to get better Mm -hmm. and those that continue to get worse? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, I think that it's been something where many of us have been writing and many more have been active on different fronts, national, local, state, whether it's legislative or actually in the soil, um, and creating some wonderful changes. You know, whether it's urban agriculture has been this really blossoming movement around the country that uh, is taking a lot of vacant lands and unused and underutilized lands and rebuilding the soil and making it something where we can actually grow food and sometimes even, uh, you know, doing that in a way that gives folks in poor neighborhoods and communities of color, giving people jobs or, or giving people an opportunity to work in the land and learn how to work with the land and revitalize, you know, certain crops and feed their community. So there's some great hope in that respect as well as, um, you know, organic food production as a whole has been booming, mm-hmm. um, you know, in recent decades. And, you know, overall, that's absolutely a good, important thing for both human health and for the environment to get those pesticides out of there. But mm-hmm. you know, as, we've, as we've seen with everything else in the food sector and in our economy, um, it's become taken over more and more by large-scale industrial interests and corporate interests. And um, so it's still better to have large-scale organic than large-scale pesticide food production. But you still have a problem where more and more of the land and production is controlled by a few companies. And, um, you know, and that can drive things like single-crop production, which is not good for the soil, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, you know, which actually re- requires um, more water. For instance, you know, the soil doesn't replenish itself, doesn't hold the water as well. So there's a lot of different aspects of that that are not helpful, um, you know. And we've seen, you know, Walmart is now, I think, the single biggest purveyor of organic foods. Um, and, and again, you know, you want to see yeah, isn't that a organic good? food. <laughs> it is. Well, you know, I mean, I don't know that there's really much of anything good that's connected to Walmart. Um, but I do think that you, what you do want is... Uh, organic food to become accessible and affordable to the general population and to everybody. That is an absolute necessity. Um, And, you know, sadly, in a way, Walmart is, is, you know, because of their pricing systems, they can do better at that than than some other places. Um, What I would argue, and we can go into this more, and I think it's part of actually the Green New Deal, as, as I and others see it, you know, is that we need... Uh, various public investments and supports to expand smaller scale and medium scale organic farming mm-hmm. in a way that feeds re- local and regional markets and that um, enables farmers to deal with, uh, you know, whether it's 
selling more in farmers markets or to uh, local and regional stores that are not, you know, the problem with Walmart is, A, they exploit their workers, many of whom rely on food stamps, uh, you know, famously, but it's still true today, you know, to get their food because mm-hmm. they're impoverished. And uh, they exploit small businesses and farmers uh, because they have all the negotiating power and yeah. leverage. Okay. So what about, I mean, you're, are there any examples before we switch to talk about mm-hmm. the Green New Deal? Um, I mean, there, I feel like there are examples of corporations really trying to put forward more meaningful sustainability goals and, and kind of mm-hmm. doing um, more progressive work in sure. the service of <laughs> creating a better food system. Like, are there any examples out there of companies you think are doing good things right now? Yeah, I think that, that there are companies that are making better, more commitments, and mm-hmm. there's been pressure from uh, even globally on, yeah. on massive food corporations and their supply chains to make sure that, you know, they're treating workers on the land and farmers better. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have seen some good commitments. You know, what, what what's not clear yet is whether those commitments are really being delivered on. And, you know, I, I, I think that 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 aspect remains to be seen. You know? yeah. So I don't want to sort of call out an, an individual company and give them undue, undue praise. But, you know, it's, <laughs> I think it's true that, um, you know, some big corporations and companies due to this publication education and pressure uh, are seeing that there are chunks of the market that really are growing where there's this really significant concern about whether it's humane treatment of animals, um, to, you know, less pressure, but some pressure on humane treatment of workers mm-hmm. um, and making sure that um, the food is either healthier or less harmful uh, to our bodies. And, uh, you know, so there, there are those uh, bits of progress happening. You know, I would argue that, um, you know, I'm all for any form of progress that we can get. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. I am uh, one who, having studied the food system for many years, uh, I would have a concern with anybody seeing that as the solution. You know, the problem is, um, you know, there is an aspect in which these corporations still have phenomenal buying power and negotiating power in the marketplace with workers and with farmers and small businesses and producers who are on the ground level doing, you know, making the food. Yeah, and when you have that negotiating power, you basically you're demanding maximum profit, and the profit has to come out of somewhere, and it almost invariably comes out of uh, the pockets of farmers and workers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that's definitely. That's, I would say that's true. Um, all right. Well, how did you come to write about the Green New Deal specifically? Because I, you know, I don't think that there's a there's really not a lot to write about right now. I mean, we have, <laughs> we have some ideas, but um, you're like one of the first, especially with regard to the food system, um, talking about about this proposal. So what kind of drew you to it and inspired you to start covering it? Yeah, um, it, it was something that, you know, I was thinking actually about stories that I wanted to write in the, in the new year or late last year as well about um, sort of the newly democratic Congress and, and a couple of different ideas of things that um, there was an opportunity to really uh, push a new agenda and uh, not only push Republicans, but frankly, push many of the Democrats as well. And so 
you know, one article I wrote was about um, the People's Budget and the Progressive Caucus in Congress, which is the largest caucus or one of the largest caucuses in Congress. Um, and that's sort of perennial effort to try to uh, readjust priorities, domestic priorities uh, in spending and in programs and make them more economically just and, and environmentally responsible as well. And one of the ideas that I thought about, I mean, not that I came up with it, you know, it's been around for about a decade or more, um, it was the idea that, you know, the new Congress ought to be looking at something like the Green New Deal. Um, you know, I think there were murmurings of this and interest, you know, it was kind of a funny thing where I happened to pitch my editor at The Nation and just a few days after I'd pitched uh, them and they'd said, yes, go ahead, there were suddenly headlines about the Green New Deal because... Um, Sunrise Movement and Ocasio-Cortez were protesting inside the halls of Congress and in Nancy Pelosi's office and in other places, uh, really sort of raising up this issue yeah. in the headlines. Um, they really did it. You know, I mean, it's, you know, again, the idea, you know, you have to give some credit to the Green Party and to, and to other folks who have been talking about this idea uh, for for many years. Right, because it's not, really, it's not really new. It's not a new idea, right? You right. said it's been kind of... Percolating. It's been percolate, percolating, and, and people have been talking about it. You know, you, you, the term green jobs has been around for a while. The yeah. Green New Deal is a larger concept, you know, that, that references, obviously, the original New Deal um, from the days of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the Great Depression, and um, the idea being both in content but also in scope and boldness, this idea that uh, you'd really be taking on a, a quite grand project, um, not grandiose, but grand, you know, in the sense that um, to, to say, you know, this is not just sort of one piece of legislation or a little bit of tweaking or, and, and it's not just um, a few green jobs over here or over there. It's really about addressing some of the fundamentals in our economy. Right. And so some people are saying it's going way too far and others are thinking it's not going far enough. And, yeah. Um, you know, yeah, that's politics. <laughs> that is politics. Um, yeah. Do you want to tell us just briefly what the Sunrise Movement is so we can help set the stage here? Yeah. So, so you know, I didn't know about them until this and they haven't been around that long um, as a movement. And also the folks who are at the at the sort of focal point of it or leading it or haven't been around that long, frankly, they're, um, which is part of it, you know, which is to say that they're young folks. Um, mm -hmm. And they are growing up amidst this looming cloud of, it's not even looming, it's a real cloud of, yeah. of uh, climate crisis, you know. And it, it kind of reminds me of when I was growing up in, in the 80s and, you know, so much of the talk was around nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons, nuclear war, and even nuclear power as being just this huge presence that had the, the, the distinct possibility of destroying all of us. And, and this is something where it's actually happening, and it's not something where we're just, you know, waiting to see if somebody pushes a button or not. You know, it's actually happening every day because of some of the fundamentals in our economy, the global economy, not just the U.S. economy, but the U.S. is one of the chief engines of, of climate change, unfortunately. But um, so... You know, Sunrise Movement are folks uh, anywhere from, say, early teens to late 20s, roughly, who have been out there really organizing and, and making noise and protesting in different congressional offices and, hall, and the halls of Congress. And, um, you know, you have to give them some credit for, for really raising up, 
you know, the issue uh, in the public eye, you know, and and so I think that, you know, the, what's interesting is that you see also a lot of leadership from the younger members of the new Congress as well. Uh, and so there is this way in which as, many, as much as many of us middle-aged and older folks definitely are there and we get it, um, there's a way in which the newer generations, I think, are just, they're steeped in this. They're, you know, if they're aware and they're caring and they're focused, they're seeing yeah. me, that they're steeped in this reality. Yeah, they're angry because yeah. like nothing has really been done on this and ever. <laughs> right, right. I mean, you know, yeah, and it, and it's a huge. I mean, I mean, this is the the issue. The challenge is that it is a it is a massive effort, and um, you know, which is why you know you might see something as exciting and bold as the Green New Deal resolution being attacked on both ends. You know, because yeah. it threatens. Uh, in many ways, it threatens the interests of the establishment. You know, you know yeah. the fossil fuel industry, uh, re- Democrats and Republicans, who many of whom get fossil fuel money, uh, and I think that has something to do with some of the opposition, even from the Democratic side. Unfortunately, yeah, we're uh, gonna we're gonna yeah. talk a little bit more about the opposition in just a second. But before we before we go too far, like what is in its most basic form? This is a proposal. Mm-hmm. This is a resolution. So. Is this binding? Like, is this, will this become law if it's voted on? Can you just um, tell us about, sure. like, wh- what it is? <laughs> what, what this yeah. thing is? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And folks, you know, I encourage folks to look it up more in more detail um, online. And you can go to, uh, well, my article at Civil Eats has a link to it. And, and, and you can also check it out through Ocasio-Cortez's website, I believe. But um, so it's a resolution that is um, being put forth in the House and in the Senate, as you mentioned earlier. And it's not, uh, as far as I know, it's not binding, and it's not legislation. And so I think that, you know, my, my sense is that when the first uh, salvo came up in the new Congress um, in the early part of the new year, uh, and it was shot down fairly quickly by um, Speaker Pelosi and others and the House leadership, Stanley Hoyer, yeah, uh, the reason, you know, that I'm saying this is because this is kind of how this thing came about <laughs> as a resolution, you know, that there was a try for a larger Green New Deal legislation and a, and a committee, uh, to take this on. And the underlying goal seems to be to create legislation that's, uh, signature ready, so to speak, by 2020. By, by the time if you got a, uh, Democratic Senate and a Democratic president, you might have the opportunity with legislation legislation that's ready to go. Okay. Um, yeah, and so this resolution is um, has some concrete goals, um, such as again, you know, full uh, carbon. Well, did carbon the committee? Neutrality. So the committee didn't happen. That was shot down. Right. You said in the right. in the in the winter or like before the new year. Yes, exactly. Okay. So there was a push almost right away from Ocasio Cortez and a couple others to create this uh, Green New Deal committee, okay. uh, which, which would be a place where this legislation could be created over a two-year period. Okay. I don't think anybody expected to create it overnight. Right. And I think that their, their strategy or idea was, you know, we need a committee so that we can really focus on this as a whole and create that legislation. So that was shot down by the Democratic leadership, and instead they recreated a uh, climate Global Warming Committee and Energy Committee that uh, Pelosi had launched in 2007 that has no legislative authority. 
and no subpoena powers. And so there's been this uh, which means they, they couldn't create. Does that sorry to keep interrupting you? I yeah, just want to no, make no, sure I'm, I'm, I'm jumping around. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just want to make sure I'm getting all the you know yeah. all my ducks so in a row. It, but what it means is they can't. So so they sorry. So like the climate committee can't. Uh, create its own legislation okay, right now, okay. and I can't uh, require, say, Exxon or other, let's just say, other corporate executives to uh, to come testify about okay. uh, their emissions in some form. Got That's it. All right. So that so it's toothless. So what is the purpose? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it does. You know, perhaps it can be a place where uh, some of the discussion can happen and hearings. And you know, so I'm not going to say it's toothless, but it's not nearly what folks have been pushing for, and frankly, what I would say is utterly necessary, um, you know, and so even though I'm a journalist and I look at all this, you know, it is, frankly, kind of maddening mm-hmm. <laughs> when, you see, when you see what the science says, you know, see what the internationally accepted science says about us having between 12 and 15 years to, to basically reverse, um, well, not even reverse, but try to avoid Mitigate. some of the worst impacts yeah. of climate change. So that didn't happen. So then what? So then um, AOC and um, Marky were just like, we're going to do it ourselves." Or how, how did the proposal right. come out then? Yeah. So I don't know their full strategy, but I sense that, you know, from looking at this, that they must have recognized that we're not going to, you know, they're not going to get full legislation passed. And I, I'm, I'm assuming that this is a, a precursor to legislation. And and maybe a way to to sort of see where people are at, to see what could pass muster. Um, so this is my interpretation, not mm-hmm. necessarily, not, you know. But and um, and that you know, one would hope that following this would be actual legislation. And and um, Senator Merkley from Oregon has been working on some related legislation around the Green New Deal as well. And so there's some action on various fronts um, to. I think push this in different ways and and see where where they can get the support, um, you know. And so again, that's why you get the situation where, uh, you know, some people feel like it's it's a little general in some of the terms that it talks about, but you know, some of the goals are very clear. You know, again, like carbon neutrality by two thousand thirty, um, getting to full renewable energy and decarbonization, as they call it. You know, basically eliminating uh, carbon monoxide production from the U.S. economy, mm-hmm. uh, which would take a huge, huge push, but it's also utterly essential. Okay. So, yeah, so what are, so is it is it um, 2030 or 2050? Well, uh, my, my understanding was 2030. I think that there's going to be this constant negotiation and battling over uh, what, you know, what percentage can be reduced and, by when, uh, and and of course those calculations uh, will have a lot to do with, um, you know, how far people are willing to go. Frankly, in uh, using uh, legislation in the public sector to spur more renewable energy production, to expand the electric grid, mm-hmm. uh, and expand solar and wind and tidal energy. Uh, and to uh, really dramatically reduce and downscale um, carbon emissions and therefore, you know, and greenhouse gases. And so therefore what that means is really reducing, um, you know, uh, everything from, you know, huge power plants in the power sector and, 
and the energy grid and getting away from that and coal-fired plants um, and certainly the use of oil and gas, uh, which is part of our um, national economic infrastructure right now, you know, mm-hmm. even even just whether it's semi-trucks or rail or sh- other forms of shipping and transit, uh, obviously jet fuel uh, being in the mix as well um, for both um personal, you know, human travel as well as yeah. for, for, for commerce. I, so, okay. Yeah. I, you know, I just, I think that 2050 was the, um, for the entire world, <laughs> their goal like right. worldwide. And then for the U.S. Yeah. right, it's 2030. So um, just wanted to make sure that was that yeah. point of clarification exactly. Exactly. <laughs> on my end. Um, no, okay. no, that sounds right. Yeah. Um, so then, okay. So very, fairly broad, wide reaching. Um, and there is a big part, you know, it's, pretty, I don't know if it's like optimistic, but the number of new jobs that would be created um, through this, like there is this thought in this country, I think that switching to renewables is going to put all these people out of work, but isn't mm-hmm. it kind of the reverse? Aren't there like, isn't it one of the biggest yeah. growing sector, like job sectors we have right now is like clean energy jobs? Absolutely. I mean, this is really, you know, one of the worst red herrings that's put out by uh, some of the fossil fuel industry interests and, and some of their friends. Um, excuse me. I mean, there's research on this, and I have this in my article in The Nation, if people want to look it up as well. Um, it's called Can the Blue Wave Deliver a Green New Deal? It's a little old, but it's still got some of this information in it about, um, you know, the jobs comparison between, uh, say, coal production and other fossil fuel production and renewable, and it's just not even close. I mean, it's just so dramatically, um, you know, these renewable energy sectors, electric grid sectors are creating way more jobs. Green economy is creating way more jobs. Mm-hmm. And, and like anything else, they range, they run the gamut, you know, from perhaps lower wage service oriented positions to whether it's, you know, some form of design or mechanical work uh, or implementation or construction or, you know, there's all these different other aspects that uh, can really involve um, higher wage, unionized, potentially hopefully unionized jobs uh, all across the country. And, you know, what's interesting to me as well when I was researching this earlier is that, um, you know, many of, many of the big fossil fuel states are also places that are struggling economically. So they're... Yeah. Producing, they're producing the fossil fuels. They're producing also, therefore, um, disproportionate levels of emission of, gro- of greenhouse gas emissions through the production and transport of the fossil fuels. And then they're struggling economically with whether it's poverty or low wages and underemployment. So, um, you know, whether it's West Virginia or Wyoming or New Mexico, Texas, other yeah. places, yeah, Texas, yeah. parts of Texas. So there's huge, you know, and portions of these states, you know, regions where right. that are even especially dependent on this. Um, so this is, you know, it is what, what we make it. You know, I think it's something where, um, you know, the possibilities are, are quite huge if politicians and the government and, of course, the general public are willing to make this happen, you know, to create, to use the public interest and the public uh, investment money <laughs> as a spur to create these jobs. Um, well, you know, um Andrew Wheeler is now officially the head of the EPA. So I think we got it. I think we're all good. (laughs) I think we're a big, 
a lot of oh, movement goodness. on this front. Oh goodness, yeah, <laughs> I know. Oh. I mean, that's the, the the sad, frustrating thing. But I think on the other side, you know, what what is hopeful is the movement, both on the streets and the streets, as well as in in some parts of Congress and also in states and localities. You know, let's yeah. not forget that it doesn't all happen in Congress. That hugely matters. Oh, thank but, God. But there's a lot of action going on on state levels as well and local levels too. You know, everything from, you know, speaking of food, for instance, it's like trying to get school districts and other municipal agencies to uh, dramatically reduce meat consumption as just one area, for instance. Mm -hmm. And there have been studies on this that show that, you know, school districts, for instance, can reduce meat consumption and the kids are still, you know, enjoying lunch and just as healthy, if not healthier, and... Uh, money can be saved, water can be saved, and it reduces carbon emissions. Right. Um, so there are things like that that, on a larger scale, actually make a huge dent. Um, you know, and, and when we're talking about food, um, it's a really underestimated aspect of the larger economy and of both the, the um, cause as well as potential solution to climate change. Um, yes, we should, we should probably talk about <laughs> foods, the food systems relationship to, or, you know, place in this Green New Deal. But, um, so I, I also want to play a quick game of true or false with you yeah. before we get into there. And you know what? We're going to take a quick break. That is what we need to do. We need to take a really quick okay. commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, we're going to play a fun game of true or false uh, about what is in ready. the Green New Deal and uh, talk more about what it means for our food system specifically. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, featuring a variety of interactive displays. MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show until the end of March 2019. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history, and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Make sure you check out Chow while you still can. The exhibition closes at the end of March 2019. Check out MOFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org slash events. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Andrew Friedman, and I'm the host of Andrew Talks to Chefs here on HRN. Every week, I interview a diverse cross-section of the best and biggest names in professional cooking. Give a listen and get to know all about the inner lives of chefs. You can find Andrew Talks to Chefs wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm talking with Christopher D. Cook about the Green New Deal. Okay, before we went to break, I said we we're going to play true or false, a little fun game, and um, now we're going to get into it. All right, you ready? All right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> 
Will the Green New Deal take away our, and I quote, airplane rights? Airplane rights? Yes, says President Trump. Well, first of all, we don't have airplane rights. Uh, <laughs> all no right. Such thing. Um, but <laughs> want, uh, so I guess it's a no. <laughs> I, I guess no. You okay. Know. Um, cool. I'll just say maybe it should <laughs> overall, but 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 not on an individual level. I don't know, I, man. My my family lives across the country, so uh, yeah, <laughs> I really I, need to fly. I'll get a I'll get a bunch of tirades over that one. But <laughs> <laughs> all right, next one. Will the Green New Deal? Uh, confiscate our cars and require Americans to ride around on high-speed light rail supposedly, maybe, powered by unicorn tears, as suggested by my favorite, Senator Tom Cotton. True or false? Oh, goodness. Yeah. (laughs) Do we even dignify this? No. (laughs) I don't know. Absolutely not. Unicorn Um, tears are a thing, I think. Um, yeah, I guess uh, no confiscation <laughs> is going to be proposed, and, and even if it were, it wouldn't happen. All right, here's the really important one um, that certainly affects me on an everyday basis from um, Senator John Barrasso of Wyoming. Oh, good. Um, yeah. Which, okay, ready? Will um, ice cream, cheeseburgers, and milkshakes be a thing of the past under the Green New Deal because livestock will be banned? It's like a, a big problem for me because I really love dairy. So is that is that going to yeah, happen? Yeah. So so you and others can apply for for waivers and exemptions to make sure you still get your. <laughs> uh, no, no. I mean, if I could, you know, um, I think that you know that what's interesting. Um, do you have one more? Or can no, I, that's uh, it. All three. Yeah, those are. Okay, I'm sure so, there were more, but those are like right. the highlights that I really clung to yeah, from Twitter. No, they're they're, they're amazing. <laughs> And, you know, but I think what's fascinating about some of these scare tactics is that a they're 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 not going to happen even if he even if some of the advocates wanted it to happen. Yeah. Or, or you know, the proposal often is for less of some of this or a lot of this stuff, mm-hmm. not none of it. And nobody's proposing that the government, the big bad government, um, so to speak, is would have any power to take away. Um, any of this stuff. So, you know, I think that the irony of all this is that um, we do need to dramatically reduce uh, meat and dairy consumption. Mm -hmm. And we do need to dramatically reduce um, our our jet travel until we have some other more sustainable way of doing it. It doesn't mean none, and it doesn't mean that the government is taking it away from anybody. Um, but this is also kind of, you know, I would say really an infantilization of of course um, of the voters and of the general public, and it's so insulting on so many levels because um, it assumes and presumes that this is all anybody cares about and that we're not also like grown adults uh, and young folks who are often more adult than many of the adults in the room mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Who, who recognize that there are more important things. I mean, this is like on the micro level, that, that they're kind of playing the game at. It's like when we all grow up, we learn that there are things that are more important than other things and that some yeah. things take precedent. It is co- baffling to me, though, and we talked a little bit about um, 
you know, the fact that there is kind of opposition for the Green New Deal, even in the Democratic Party. But, you know, you see these statistics from the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, which they do a lot of surveying. And they, you know, one of their recent surveys says 71% of Americans think global warming is happening. And Mm -hmm. 47% say they're very or extremely sure. And uh, I don't, 50% of them say that um, they believe they'll be personally harmed by global warming. So mm-hmm. I just don't understand where the disconnect is among anyone yeah. in terms yeah, of Yeah, I mean, I, right. No, I mean, I think this is, you know, on one level, you know, maybe there's some human natural denial going on, but, you know, not to psychologize it. I mean, on the larger level, there are profound, massive industrial uh, corporate interests, economic interests um, that, are, that are lined up behind the current, the status quo, the economic status quo. And, you know, I don't think anybody is proposing to just immediately pull the rug out from under anyone. You know, I think that what's, what's exciting to me, and I, again, going back to what I, why, why I wanted to write about this, is I'm interested in proactive, uh, forward-looking ideas that are not just responding and saying no. You know, I mean, this is part of the thing that Democrats, progressives, others, you know, it's easy to say no to certain glaringly, you know, horrible things that are happening in Washington um, and elsewhere. But, you know, we have to say yes to something. And it's like if we're going to create a future that has any sort of livability to it for human beings and for many species out there, frankly, the planet, as many point out, will be fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there are humans and many species who will be either eradicated or, or woefully just, you know, in widespread, even worse misery. And the disconnect... I think is a mixture of, um, you know, again, these, these, these huge interests behind the status quo. And in some cases, the larger and more urgently necessary the change is, um, the greater that disconnect might be, you know, because it's too, it's huge. Um, yeah, you know, change is scary aspect, and people don't want to give yeah. up stuff. Right. And, you know, like, I think like me with dairy. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, there's that fear, you know, I think there's also, there's just, the climate denialism that's created by the fossil fuel industry and the Republican Party has mm-hmm. been, uh, you know, and almost everybody in the Republican Party is some form of climate denialist. And it's just, yeah, it, it's absolutely, it's, it's, it's so just profoundly irresponsible and, and really criminal in the sense that we have something that is objectively happening, that is yeah. happening to the planet and that really knows no bounds. You know, there are people in the world feeling it more immediately than others, and I think that's the other aspect is that, you know, what people call frontline communities globally and in the U.S. that tend to be poorer folks uh, who are getting, seeing the impacts much more dramatically. But, you know, let's, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that, for instance, farmers all around the U.S. are feeling the effects of climate change. Yeah. Um, hugely. And they're losing tons of money. And, you know, we're paying $300 billion a year or more uh, for the impacts of climate change every year. So it's like we're paying already. $300 billion. Uh, yeah. Wow. Just Yeah. T- just I mean, total. the price tag is, is huge um, because of all the different crises and emergencies and that happen that are related to climate change. And so, you know, this idea of a Green New Deal is about spending the money proactively and preventively and also to, um, you know, there's a lot of forms of adaptation that have to take place, um, you know, and just like within 
the food sector, which is a huge area where, again, everybody from farmers to food corporations, uh, they're aware of this yeah. problem. They even talk about it in their, uh, in their government filings. The big public corporations talk about this as a risk factor, uh, climate change. So they're aware of it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're ahead of <laughs> the Republicans and, and some others in government around this. Um, we really need to, you know, have a, a massive uh, shift from the kinds of, you know, we pay, for instance, 13 to $15 billion a year in subsidies and crop insurance that go almost entirely to the large-scale uh, sort of single-crop type of industrial production that I talked about before mm-hmm. uh, that is pesticide-fueled, that is creating ingredients for the fuel and meat industries uh, primarily. And uh, so we absolutely have to shift those investments. The same farmers or other farmers in those regions can get that money and uh, create um, or, you know, shift to organic production and shift to local and regional market production. And you can also create more jobs for farmers and related uh, job sectors within rural economies that can really boost rural America by helping to shift farmers in this way that is not just changing what they farm, um, but encouraging soil practices that benefit the environment, benefit their crops, um, expanding markets for organic and local foods, um, not because it sounds nice, but because it's fundamentally better for farmers and for the environment. So how so, things, you know? so so how would all this happen in the Green New Deal? Like what what that is currently kind of in the proposal, the broad yeah. strokes, of course. What would that mean for our food system? What would yeah. it encourage? Right. So that so in the current resolution, there's not much to be honest. There's a, a, a nod to some of these larger principles. Um, there's a few phrases basically in a very short section. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of folks pushing in different ways, uh, farming groups, agriculture groups, and environmental groups around the country, and, and food workers and farm workers who are pushing for things to be in the Green New Deal that would include things like um, more money for uh, research and market expansion and technical support for people to shift to organic food. So, like, a lot of farmers would like to make that shift. They can see that they might make more money, better money. They can see that it might be better for their health uh, and their local environment. They don't have the ability right now to do that. They don't have the resources always to make that shift. Often they're locked into these contracts with uh, the Monsantos and others of the world, um, requiring them to, to do GMO production and use associated pesticides and chemical fertilizers and farmers are often in this trap where, so this isn't like Washington telling farmers, like this is the classic Republican line would be, Washington's telling farmers what to produce. And it's such a, it's such a, another one of these red herrings because it's actually expanding opportunities and enabling farmers to make the shift that so many of them want to make, but they can't make it. So you'd invest and you'd take some of that money that goes into these huge corporate um, subsidies and crop insurance programs and you'd move it into, uh, you know, more money for smaller scale and medium scale organic production and market expansion in local and regional areas. And organic um, specifically, you think that that, because I'm a little bit on the fence about whether or not it needs to be, you right. know, USDA designated well, organic. 
Right. There's a lot of debate about that, and, and I'm using organic as a larger term because okay, there is yeah. a lot of, yeah, so regenerative agriculture. Sustainable. Is, is sustainable agriculture. Okay, okay, yeah. So a lot of this is about, you know, less tillage of the soil. Right. You know, not necessarily no-till, but less till of the soil. Okay. Uh, more, more crop rotation, no pesticides and chemical fertilizers. Um, agroecology is this whole larger set of principles and, and practices that I really encourage folks to look up mm-hmm. on their own since we don't have a whole, a whole lot more time, but yeah. uh, there's a great set of principles around uh, caring for the soil. I mean, it all starts with the soil and, and uh, you know, and also revitalizing uh, heirloom seeds and biodiversity, you know, as being this other key thing that our food system is, is destroying. And it's not because of farmers, it's because of this larger set of economic incentives from the market and from government policy. Um, you know, so this will really, like, we could drive this in another direction that could also encourage farmers to protect pollinators, you know, expand pollinator habitats surrounding farmlands. And if you give farmers the incentives to do it, they'll do it. Right. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that is 100% sure. Or, I mean, Absolutely. I was not restricted to USDA organic. That's a, a very good point, I think, that you make that... Um, you know, there are a lot of debates about that, and you know, but I think that it is a, a set of practices that people talk about mm-hmm. that are critically important for soil that um, create healthier food, that create far le- really, you know, no pollution, <laughs> so to speak, over you know, far less pollution, radically reduces emissions, and also creates soil that can store carbon. You know, the other thing we have to do is store, uh, you know, sequester, as they say, so much of the carbon in our environment. Um, that's a huge goal of the Green New Deal and, and what we need to do. And uh, soil, re- you know, rebuilding soil across America, uh, nobody can do that better than farmers. Um, and if they're given the right set of incentives to do it, they'll do it. Um, and you think that the, you know, so it's very important, especially for the food industry, ag industry, to um, become a bigger part of the Green New Deal because, you, I mean, you write that, uh, you know, food and ag is responsible for, what, 9% of the country's greenhouse gas emissions. So you think this is, yeah. like, a bigger call to action for this industry? Uh, sorry. Yeah, absolutely. And and 9% is really uh, an underestimate. Yeah. I, I use that because it's the only thing that the EPA makes available publicly yeah. that's official. Globally, it's 30%. And so yeah. likely in the U.S., it's it must be close to that or 20 to 30, you know, so let's, you know, put that in perspective. But, yeah, it's a huge call for this, and it's a recognition for those even working on the Green New Deal to even just recognize the centrality of food production because, again, it is globally 30%. It's the largest single economic sector in terms of causes of climate change and greenhouse gases is the food sector, food and agriculture sector, the top one the top across co- the globe. Sorry, you said the top cause? Of? The top cause is food and agriculture production and all the different things associated with that. Uh, deforestation, land removal, mm-hmm. you know, all kinds of things like that. So um, this is a call to action within the U.S., uh, both in the Green New Deal and, and beyond, really, to move in a completely different direction, you know, in terms, and it's, again, what the science calls on us to do. And, you know, whether it's, you know, you're looking at climate change or you're looking at water pollution in America, you know, industrial agriculture is the top polluter of waterways across America. So 
you know, coming from pesticides and chemical fertilizers, as well as from large-scale factory farms, concentrated animal productions. Um, so it's not about saying no meat, no dairy. You know, the, we can have debates about all of that, but it is about saying less and far better. Yeah. Um, and and I think there's a good argument for for making it. You know, I'm not saying you know eliminate all of it, but <laughs> I think that you know the point is we need to radically reduce. Um, yeah, that's for that sure. For so many reasons, and and give these farmers. You know, the last thing I'll mention here is that um, you know originally in the American economy, and my far- my book goes into a lot more detail about this. Farmers were really into diverse production. They had animal production and crop production, primarily for local and regional markets. And we've moved so far away from that. Um, that we really need to move back in that direction uh, and encourage farmers to do that. And and part of that is to also give farmers a fair price. So it's not just a subsidy piece. It's also something a lot of people are talking about now is this old concept that goes back to the original New Deal, this idea of parity pricing, a fair price Mm -hmm. minimum wage for farmers. uh, And that will enable them to uh, produce uh, diverse food you know, diverse food supplies for local and regional economies and uh, not overproduce, you know, not just mass produce one product because that's how they survive. Uh, That's a terrible way for anybody to survive. Yeah. Uh, Yes. Um, Quickly, we we have to wrap up in in like 60 seconds, but next steps um, for the proposal. I read that Mitch McConnell Ugh, eh, ugh, um, is <laughs> yeah. like no words. Um, are he's calling for a vote? Like he wants to bring the. Yeah. What, if it's not a piece of legislation, yeah. can you just give me a little like civics lesson? Yeah, here? yeah. I mean, there's a lot of politics going on there. I think there's going to be there's a push for a delay uh, in the vote. And, but what would they vote on if it's uh, like totally so, non-binding? Well, it would be on the resolution. I believe it would be on Ed Markey's resolution. And I'm sure what they're doing is they know that the Republican majority will, will kill it, and they'd like to try to, like, kill this movement as quickly Nip as they could, yeah. I guess. Uh, yeah. It's going to keep going in the House. I mean, I think everybody from Ocasio-Cortez to others understands that right now this is about propagating the ideas and the policies and moving it through the House and educating the American public and laying the groundwork to make this possible in 2020. Everybody knows it's not going to happen right now. But if you don't do this work now, then you're starting from scratch in 2020. And again, 12 to 15 years, that's the science. That's not somebody's opinion. Yeah. Um, we, can't, we can't afford delay from either party, including the Democratic Party, from Feinstein to Pelosi to others who have uh, really, back. really um, thrown some wrenches in this in this movement. We really need to see people wake up and see the reality, the scientific reality and the need for uh, pretty huge urgent change. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm assuming you're going to continue covering this topic? As much as possible, writing about it in different ways. Um, yeah. Playing whatever role I can play um, <laughs> as, as a journalist and, and supporter. Yeah. Uh, where can we find a copy of your book and where can we go to continue to uh, follow your work? Yeah, thank you. So again, it's called Diet for a Dead Planet, and uh, it's been around since since around 2006 in paperback, but it's still, I would say, highly relevant. Very relevant, so yes. Bookstores online, I always encourage local bookstores or Powell's Books Online is another good place you can get it. Um, and then articles, you know, 
this uh, piece I wrote in The Nation, Can the Blue Wave Deliver a Green New Deal? And then an uh, article in Civil Eats recently uh, about the food and farming aspects of the Green New Deal is another one that I might um, point folks to and and read more there, hopefully. Right. And, and your yeah. website is your personal uh, website? You. <laughs> yeah, so my website is uh, ChristopherDCook.com, www.ChristopherDCook.com. Uh, many more of my articles there, and, and uh, appreciate the time to talk about this. Thank you so much for um, coming on the show, Christopher. This is great. Yeah, thanks so much. Okay, we're going to um, leave it there for today. I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support, as well as uh, thanks to our engineer, Jeet Paul amazing, amazing engineer who makes this all happen. Um, show music is by the very talented Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on Heritage's website or as a podcast, wherever you may find your podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. Let me know what you want to hear more of, maybe less of. <laughs> I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.